chapter 2 this morning. Turn your Bibles when you get them to Mark chapter 2. And what we're going to talk about this morning is uh, some principles from the life and teaching of Jesus on how to be fishers of men. Last week in chapter 1, do you remember, Jesus said to, his, uh, to the fishermen, he said, hey, follow me and I'll make you become, what? Fishers of men. And so what he was equating there is in following Jesus, if we're truly following Jesus, we enter into a new cause, a new mission, and that is to be along with him, fishers of men. That's our job. That's why Christ leaves us here after we get saved, is because we're supposed to be a part of his mission. Mark 16, 15 will tell us when we get there, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The commission, Matthew 28, go, church, go, go, go. And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Jesus promised, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the power we need to be fishers of men is there, because Jesus said, Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power, dunamos in the Greek, dynamo, dynamite power, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, which was their home, Judea, Samaria, the surrounding areas, and even to the end of the earth. And so we're supposed to be a part of Jesus' mission to be fishers of men. And I don't know about you, but I don't like just to fish when I go fishing. I don't go fishing much because I have a problem with the fruit of the Spirit called patience. It's just sitting out there and not getting anything done just drives me crazy. I'm like, what am I doing out here? But if I do fish, I like to not only fish... I like to catch. I have a good friend that's the pastor of the Calvary Chapel in St. Petersburg, uh, Florida. His name is Danny Hodges. And he's like me. He likes to not only fish, he likes to catch. So much so he's got a boat that he takes out on the Gulf of Mexico. And on the boat is not only fishing poles, but he's got scuba tanks and he's got spear guns. And he spends about maybe 40, 50 minutes. And if no fish are biting, he says, I'm going to go find some fish. And I'm going to get in my scuba tanks and boom, we're going to go get some fish. But... Jesus wants us to be fishers of men. Part of his cause, bringing people into the kingdom of God. And we're going to learn from a great story this morning. We're going to learn some five principles this morning on how we could effectively be fishers of men and women for the cause of Christ. From the example of Jesus Christ. Five principles this morning. And these will help us do what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus Christ and being fishers of men and women for the cause and for the kingdom of God. So let's turn to Mark chapter 2. If you're there, say amen. Man, you beat Pastor John. Pretty good. All right, jump in. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, and when he had come back to Capernaum, Jesus had come back to Capernaum, several, several days afterward, it was heard that Jesus was at home. Interesting. And many were gathered together so that there's no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. First thing I want you to take notice here is Jesus now is back home. But hold on a second. I thought home was Nazareth. He was Jesus the Nazarene. Well, home had changed. Remember his hometown, they didn't treat him right. They actually brought him out to a cliff to kill him. And Jesus said, hey, a prophet's not without honor except for his own hometown. And so he switched homes now. And he's in a place called Capernaum. Why Capernaum? That's where the fishermen were at. It was a main fishing village for the Sea of Galilee. And he had called fishermen. He called uh, Andrew and Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And so now Jesus has developed a whole new home. 
with these brothers in Christ that are his disciples. Probably this story takes fold in Peter's home. I've been to Capernaum a number of times, beautiful little village on the Sea of Galilee. And to this day, there's historians that have located a house. They very likely think that was Peter's house in Capernaum. And as Jesus is in Capernaum, interesting, the house is packed. So much so, you, the, the, you couldn't even get through the door, there's so many people. And, and it's just busting out of the seams. Probably a hundred people in this little house. And Jesus is doing what? Wonderful. Look at it. Jesus is speaking the word, the word of God to them. Now, interesting here, there's a dumbing down in many churches today of trying to make more seeker-sensitive services, have just do 15 minutes of teaching, if that, just do some sermonettes for some Christianettes. Because, oh, we, don't, we want to dumb it down because the unbelievers won't come if we take too long of teaching God's word. Let's just dumb it down some. No, that's totally just the opposite. The first thing we need to do in being fishers and men is give God's word to people. Because God's word is powerful. It's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. It does spiritual surgery in the hearts of people. And not only that, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, we're told that it's the imperishable seed that causes people to be born again. To the living hope of being born again. And the first thing, if we're going to be effective and be a fit catcher, catchers and fishers of men, what we got to do is we got to share God's word with people. It's good to share your testimony with people. This is who I was before Christ. This is how I came to Christ. This is the changes made. That's awesome. Testimonies are important, but even more important is sowing God's word in people's lives. Because Isaiah 55 tells us God's word doesn't return empty. It accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. And what it does is it's like a seed that grows to fruition many times in people's lives because you've planted it in their lives. Hey, don't be afraid to share God's word with lost people because, hey, lost people, many of them, they're looking for the meaning of life. They're looking for the purpose for which they're here. And God's word will explain that to them. The meaning of life is found in this book. It's inspired, it's God-breathed, it's, it's living, active. It, it teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness. There's God-breathing is inspired by God. Let's let it out, man. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher, said, you don't need to tell a tiger what to do. You just need to let the tiger out of the cage. Right? Let it out of the cage, man. It'll do a work in people's lives. I know that personal, personally from my own experience. I had a grandpa who I'm named after, John G. Hoppy Sr., and he had a lake house in Wisconsin, he had a condo in Chicago, and he had a place out in Florida. And I visited him many times growing up. I was his chip off the old block, because I'm John G. Hoppy III. It's my nickname. And whenever I went to Grandpa Hoppy's house, you can never get away from the dining room table without him opening up a Bible, reading a daily bread, and then praying for us grandkids and his first family. And I was lost. I didn't get saved until I was 17. I was a lost, rebellious teenager, but when people started witnessing to me in my late, later teens, in my 17, 16-year-old uh, time frame, there was a seed already planted by Grandpa Hoppy. And there was a receptivity to the witnessing because God's word had been sown in my life from preschool on. And I remember being at his lake house up in Wisconsin, and it's like, Grandpa, the best time to catch fish are right now. It's getting dusk, and nope, we're getting in the word. And he'd share God's word and read God's word 
and sow it into my life, and it made a difference. Amen? Let's do that for people. Don't be ashamed to share God's word with lost people. They need it, especially in this culture. The world needs the leadership of God's word. You shall know the truth, and the truth sets you free. And this is the power of this book. And that's what Jesus is doing here in Capernaum. He's speaking the word to this whole crowd of people. And then in verse 3 it says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic. And they're carried by four men. And being unable to get to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down, this is amazing, they let down the pallet with this paralyzed man in which the paralytic was lying. And seeing, or, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, notice, my son, Notice the term of endearment here to this paralytic. My son. What does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was these four friends, I'd say that's all good and dandy, Jesus, but we didn't get here, we didn't come here uh, for a spiritual reason. We came, this guy hasn't walked, he's paralyzed. He needs your healing. You're the great physician. Heal him. Forget about, we'll talk about sins being forgiven do, the, do, the, do that healing thing you did in the last chapter with the, par, with the leopard. Heal him. But notice, Jesus takes care of the most important thing, and that's not his physical need, it's his spiritual need. Jesus said in another gospel, he said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And the most important needs we have in our lives aren't physical, they're spiritual. And the most important need we have as a human being is to be forgiven of our sins. We got, a, we got a problem. Houston, we got a problem. And that is the wages of our sin is death. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the solution to that problem is the great physician Jesus healing us first spiritually. So he addresses the man's spiritual need first and his greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sin. Now notice, what brought the forgiveness of sins to him? It's Jesus, obviously, but it's also, it says, Jesus seeing their, what? Their faith. What brings forgiveness of sin? Old Testament and New Testament. What brings forgiveness of sin? It's Jesus' death on the cross, and then our personal faith in him. And this paralytic, man, he was looking to Jesus with faith. And Jesus said, hope your sins are forgiven. 200 times in the New Testament we're told, the only thing that will save us is our faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has eternal life. How do we have eternal life? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And even in the Old Testament, like I said, the way Old Testament saints were forgiven of their sins wasn't the law, it was their faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited towards him as righteousness. Justification by faith, Old Testament and New Testament. The way we're saved is faith. And the moment we put a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, Psalm 103, our sins are as far from us as the east is from the West. Last time I checked, pretty far. Isaiah 118, even though our sin is a scarlet, ooh, it's wonderful. Even though our sin is a scarlet, we're white as snow. I love that. 
the worst, dirtiest, rottenest things I've done, Jesus said, paid for in full. And the healthiest people physically, by the way, usually are the people that are healthy on the inside too. There's a connection. Have you noticed? There's a connection be, between having Jesus heal us inwardly and us being physically healthy too. There's a connection of us not being right with guilt and stress and those things that come from knowing you're not right and you stay not right. And that's the greatest thing you could do for your, not only your spiritual health, but your physical health. Is get right with God. Allow the guilt to go away because the Jesus that we love says your sins, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. I love communion. <laughs> I love what we just did. Because every time I take communion as a believer in Jesus Christ, I remember, son, me, your sins are forgiven. Even with all the dumb stuff I've done, John Hoppy, through the cross and my faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. So I want you to see something. If you want to be a fisher of men, not only do you need to share God's word with people, but you also, look at the story again, you got to be willing to do drastic things to bring forgiveness of sins to people. And what are these people, what are these four friends doing? Notice, by the way, too, this paralytic, in a lot of ways, had lost everything. This paralytic had lost his ability to walk. This paralytic had lost his ability to uh, work. This paralytic lost his ability to, to do just normal, everyday things. He, could, he was probably poor and in a situation where he had lost everything. But he hadn't lost one thing. You know what it was? He had one treasure. He had four friends. These friends loved him so much that these four friends did whatever it took to get him to Jesus. That's the second thing I want you to see here. If we're going to be fishers of men, we got to do whatever it takes to get people that we care about to Jesus. Look what these people are doing here. I mean, Jesus is in the middle of a Bible study. He's got a packed house, and they couldn't get through the door because the, the door was even jammed with 100 people that were in there or whatever. And these guys said, hey, we're not going to go home. We're going to get our friend to Jesus. And so in, the, in that culture, the houses, they had a flat roof. They had a staircase going up, and the roof was actually an outdoor porch. So they said, we're going to go up the steps. And they get up the steps, and the roofs in that culture, what they were is they had timbers, and then they'd put clay or dirt with branches. And then if it was a wealthier house, what they'd do is they'd actually put tile on top of that. According to the book of Luke, they took off tiles first. And then they started digging in the dirt. Uh, can you imagine being Jesus? You're in the midst of this Bible study. You're teaching the word. And all of a sudden it starts, do, do, do. And the dirt starts falling. The next thing you know, a body bag is coming through the stinking ceiling. I mean, I get distracted by babies. I can't imagine a hole in the ceiling with a, with a person's body being brought down. But there, here's the point. The point is they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And we need to do the same thing, church. If it's not illegal and it's not immoral and it's not unbiblical, we need to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. And that's our heritage as a church, by the way. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, did whatever it took to get a whole generation of hippies to Jesus. And he did some radical things back in the 60s. It was radical. He, he, he brought drums 
and guitars to the stage of his church. He was called the Antichrist for a while. You're bringing a demonic beat with those drums in the church. Read Psalm 150, by the way. Make him, praise the Lord with loud cymbals. It's right in the word of God. But no churches were doing that. And Chuck Smith took a radical thing because he wanted to reach a whole young generation. With, and he said, we'll change the music if we need to just to reach this young generation. Great story about Chuck Smith, too. When, when, and when all these hippies started coming, they, they, they not only changed the music, they also changed, hey, you don't really need to wear suits. All the churches were telling the hippies, you come to our church, you better put on a tie and a suit and put some shoes on, too, because the hippies were all barefooted. And one, one Sunday, Pastor Chuck <laughs> came to church, and his elders had been there already, and they had brand new carpeting in the church. And these hippies had gotten some of the carpeting dirty, and the elders put a sign at the front entrance that said, no bare feet allowed. And Pastor Chuck took the risk with his elder board of tearing the sign down before the services started and then holding an emergency elder board meeting and said, guys, if we need to tear the carpet and have concrete floors, oh, concrete floors, by the way, if we need to tear the carpet out of the sanctuary, we're not going to tell the hippies that are lost, that are coming to our church, they can't have bare feet in this church because we're going to reach them for Jesus. Amen? We, and then he started all these houses open up homes for these runaway kids, these, these homeless kids, drug addicts. And he's housed them because he wanted to provide a home for these kids that were coming to Christ. That's, that's radical, by the way. I was told the same thing when we started U-Turn for Christ. What are you doing? You're starting a U-Turn for Christ for guys with drug and alcohol problems and they're going to live on the church campus? Yeah! We're going to have them live on the church campus and disciple them in God's word so their lives could be drastically changed and they could be soldiers from the army of Christ. And that's pretty radical. That's putting a hole in the roof in some ways. But we're going to keep putting holes in the roof because we need to do whatever it takes to lead people to Christ so their lives could be changed and they could be a part of the kingdom of God with us. Amen? That's the second thing. Do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. Because we want to reach as many people for Jesus until the rapture. We want to take as many people to heaven with us as possible, and we're going to do whatever it takes. We're about to start a women's ranch in the next few months out in, out in, out in Gilbert. we got five acres out there as a church now, and we're going to help a lot of women with that. We're start, about to start a Spanish ministry for, uh, for, for Hispanic people in our community, too. And we're going to reach a lot of Hispanic people with that, too. Our Hispanic pastor from Honduras, Calvary Chapel in Honduras, he's going to come up here. Um, if probably the first week in July, we're arranging to meet him. He'll be here on Sunday morning. But and, and it's fun because I, I, I've instant messaged with him, and he's still learning English. And so I'm instant messaging, video chatting with this. And I always know that I'm losing him if I'm speaking too fast. And I speak too fast sometimes. But I always know I'm losing him because his eyes start glazing over. Yeah, Pastor John, yeah. He didn't have a clue what I'm saying. So let's, it's, he's going to be a part of our ministry, though. Why are we doing that? Because we're going to do whatever it takes to lead as many people to Jesus Christ. We're going to keep putting holes in the ceiling so that we can lead as many people to Jesus Christ as these individuals did with their, with their four friends. Amazing story. And then it goes on, verse 6. But there were some of the scribes sitting there, reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there's a half-truth in that statement. Only God can forgive sins. Right? Only God has the divine authority to forgive sins, right? But the wrong statement in that statement is he's blaspheming. 
because Jesus was what? He's God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. And the Word, John 1.14, became flesh. He dwelt among us. Oh, we beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so they're right, and only God can forgive sins. They're wrong in saying Jesus was blaspheming because he was God, and he had the divine authority to forgive this man's sins. In verse 18, or 8, he said, and immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Here we see another part of Jesus' divinity here. Jesus' divinity is shown here because he's seeing their thoughts in their hearts. Jesus' divine abilities still were in his human, even though he's fully man, he was fully God. He was still omniscient. He could see, even though they weren't saying it, he could see they were thinking that this man's blaspheming. And so Jesus is going to address that. By the way, it'd be kind of tough to hang out with Jesus a little bit, wouldn't it? Seeing my heart, seeing those thoughts I'm thinking, we're talking about an accountability partner. Woohoo! I mean, he would just see, he would be, he'd see every thought of my, oh man, okay, got me. And that's what he's doing with these scribes and these Pharisees, seeing their hearts and seeing the thoughts, even though they're not saying it. And then in verse 9 it says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Jesus speaking, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your pail and walk. But in order that you may know, Jesus says, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, paralytic, rise, take up your pallet, go home. And he rose. Immediately he took up the pallet and he went out in the sight of all so that they're all amazed. And what were they doing? What were they doing? Church, what were they doing? They were freaking out. They're amazed. They go, what is going on here? But they also were glorifying God. I love that. They were glorifying God and they were saying, we have, <laughs> we have never seen anything like this before. Never seen a Bible study being interrupted with a hole in the ceiling and a guy being brought down and Jesus not only forgiving his sins, but supernaturally doing a miracle. By the way, a miracle is a divine interruption to change the course of nature and disrupt nature supernaturally. And that's what's going on here. He's disrupting nature itself through his divine authority and saying, rise up, walk. And the atrophy in his muscles went to strength. And I could just see there's people all at the door. He's walking out. Hey, Skipping a little bit. If it was me, I'd be, <laughs> I could walk again. I'd skip it. And I could see the whole crowd, like the Red Sea, parting. And they said, wow. They were amazed. And then, look at this, the response. Glorifying God. Here's the next, next principle for being a, a fisher of men. You're witnessing, you're fishing, your evangelism should be all about bringing glory to God. Don't make your witnessing be about how good a person you are now in Christ. Make it be all about how good a Savior you have. Point the glory to Jesus. What does Matthew 5, 16 say? Let your light shine in such a way, yeah, that others may see your good works, but then they too may glorify your Father in heaven. You know why that's important? Because if it's all about you and your witnessing, 
What's going to happen is these people, if they do come to Christ, they're going to put you on a pedestal. And once you start doing some dumb things, and you will, once you start making some mistakes, they're going to be disillusioned and disappointed because you point them to yourself rather than to the Savior. And that's a mistake. That's a, that's a mistake. Because we need to get people to point them to the author and the finisher of their faith so we can be confident that he who begins a good work in them will carry it to completion until the, until the day of Christ Jesus. And I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen people that have left churches, left their faith for a season at least, and they've left walking with God because their focus was on people that were drawing attention to their goodness or their Christ-likeness and whatever else, and they just walked away from church or from Christ even for a season because they had their eyes fixed on people rather than on Jesus, who's supposed to be the author and finisher of faith. I was just talking to somebody this week. They've been out of church for a whole season. So why is that? They said, because these people in this church, I was going to this last church I was going to, they did this, they did that, they did this. And I just tried to listen and be gracious, but in my spirit I was thinking, well, you were making a mistake in the first place looking at people rather than Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but in my witnessing, I don't want people to look at me. I want them to focus on Jesus who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen? So that's the, that's the next point about being finisher of men. Number one, share God's word with others. Number two, do whatever it takes to lead people to Christ. But number three, do it all for the glory of God. Just get the attention away from yourself and your witnessing and point people to Jesus because that's the one that's going to be the author and the finisher of their faith. Give, them, give him the glory. And then, okay, let's go on with our story. Verse 13 now it's the calling of Matthew. And it says, and he went out again by the seashore. And all the multitudes were coming to Jesus. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. Now, Levi also, later we're going we're to see his name is Matthew, the writer of, the, of the, the gospel of Matthew. He saw Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose. And he followed Jesus. Now, I could just see the fishermen disciples that were already following Jesus. Because it says they were by the seashore, which means this tax collector was probably taxing these fishermen. Peter, James, John, Andrew. And listen, tax collectors were hated by their own people. Because they were Jewish usually, but they were extortioners for the Roman Empire. And they had the power of Rome to charge heavy-duty taxes to whoever they could charge taxes to, but then they'd add on to those taxes and rip their own people off. And they had the sword of Rome to make it happen, and they, they were all wealthy because they were ripping their own people off. They were equated. Uh, tax collectors were in the same category as prostitutes in the Jewish culture. The Jewish people looked upon them as the worst of sinners. And now Jesus is calling this tax collector who was on the seashore probably even taxing unfairly these fishermen that were already a part of Jesus' group. And I could see Peter, James, and John just saying, you got to be kidding me. I'm going to have to be a disciple with this guy? We're going to have to eat dinner with this guy? We're going to have to be a part of this guy's life? He, they were probably saying, oh, oy vey. But Jesus called him anyways. And not only did Jesus call him, go on with the story. Verse 15, and it came about that while he was reclining at the table in his house, many task gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, 
and they were following Jesus. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners, tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? Hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. I want to see two last points, really important, really important. Church, if you're listening, say amen. This is really important. The first thing we see with Matthew is relationship. Jesus said, not only am I going to tell you to follow me, but I'm going to go to your house. I'm going to eat dinner with you and your sinful friends. Now, that was a major no-no for Jewish culture. You didn't eat with sinners. You know why? Because it was an intimate act. In that culture, when you ate dinner, you'd all lay down by this low uh, table and you'd be on your sides laying down. And not only that, you'd have one loaf of bread and you'd have soup. And everybody would share the same loaf. You'd eat the same soup and you'd dip it in there. There was no social distancing in that culture. You ate the same bread and the same soup. And the Jews only did that with people that were righteous because they, they were considered unclean if they did that with sinful people. And Jesus said, nope, we're going to the sinner's house. I'm going to break bread with them because he wanted a relationship with that sinner. You know what one of the nicknames that Jesus' enemies gave him? Friend of sinners. If we're going to be catching men and fishers of men and women, we've got to be a friend of sinners. We gotta have a relationship with them. We gotta have friendships with people that are lost and tell them about Jesus. That's so important. I got saved through a group called Young Life. And in Young Life, they had a motto. One of the main mottos of Young Life was you gotta earn the right to be heard. And the way you earn the right to be heard by lost people is through relationship. Relationship. And Jesus did that over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. He hung out with sinners. Now, does that mean we compromise with sinners? I've heard Christians doing that. I'm starting a bar ministry. Oh, I'm going to have a good time with these people and get drunk with them and lead them to Jesus. No, you're just becoming like the world, and you're, getting, you're being reached by the world rather than reach the world by doing that. I've heard of people. I'll, I smoked weed with these people, and it was great, man. We talked about Jesus while we were smoking marijuana, a cannabis party with Jesus. No, that's wrong. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't compromise in your witnessing. But at the same time, have a bridge of a relationship and friendship with lost people because that's how you're going to lead them to Jesus. My high school, there was a whole bunch of on-fire teenagers that reached me for Jesus. I told you about the one guy that walked home with me. This is part of my testimony is Bruce Barkley for six months befriended me and walked to my house with me because he lived right on the other block right next to me. For six months, I was his friend and relationship, and he, he led me to Jesus. There's another guy, Tom Riley, Irish guy. One of the best gymnasts I've known. This guy was, can do some incredible things. But I respected his athleticism, but he was my friend too. He spent a lot of time with me. Just tell me about Jesus. For months. Tom Riley was the guy that at a, one of the camps I went to with him, sports camp. He just kept sharing Jesus with me and having friendship with me. Another guy, Bruce Mason. Remember, this is 40 some years ago. I remember all these guys' names. Bruce Mason invited me a hundred times to Young Life Club. 
<laughs> every practice. Are you coming tonight? It's Tuesday. It's club. Are you coming tonight? And I kept saying, no, I got other things to do. But after about several months of his invitations, I came. And then there was a guy that was the Young Life leader, the staff person, his name, of all names. His name was Dick Pope. He was the spiritual leader of, our spiritual leader is a high school. His name is Pope. But Dick Pope, I remember him, this was before they'd stopped letting youth ministry people be in high schools. And he was in our strength room. When I go lift weights in the strength room, Dick was in there doing some stuff. He was like a 35, 40-year-old man. But he was hanging out in the strength room, witnessing to people. And I remember walking in that strength room. I wasn't even going to Young Life yet. And he'd say, hey, John Hoppy, how you doing? He had 100 kids in his Young Life group, and he remembered my name. And then when I finally did come to Young Life, he said, John Hoppy, I want to do lunch with you. Let's go to lunch. He took me out to lunch. I'll never forget it. 1978, February, he wrote on a piece of paper, a napkin at lunch, the gospel with a bridge and a cross in Scripture. And for the first time, I fully understood the gospel. And then he went with me back in his station wagon. It was February in Chicago. And this, I remember, there's snow coming down, sitting in the station wagon, and opening my heart to Jesus, getting saved. It changed my life. Never been the same. Because he took the time to invite me to lunch, and he remembered my name, and he was a friend. That was an amen, by the way. So let's do that for some other people, amen? Let's take the time. Oh, that person will never get saved. You don't know. Be a friend. Earn the right to be heard. Care about people that are lost. Have a relationship with them. That's what Jesus did constantly through the Gospels. Zacchaeus! Come down from that tree. I'm going to your house for dinner. He did that with all people. Think about Mary Magdalene, possessed with seven demons. Talk about evil. Talk about a lost person. And she, it, he, he befriended her. And he who has been forgiven much, loves much. And who was the first person at the tomb to embalm him and to take care of him after he was killed on the cross? It was the seven demon lady. Mary Magdalene, because Jesus was her friend, and she was going to take care of him. Last thing I want you to see here, so that's the most effective way to do be a fisher of men. Fourth point is have relationship and friendship with people that need Jesus, and you need to fish and reach them for Jesus. Here's the last thing I want you to see. This is really important, really important. If we're going to be effective in being fisher of men for Jesus, Look at what Jesus says. Go back to verse 17. Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are what? Sick. And then it says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but what? Sinners. Now hold on a second here. Righteous? I thought the Bible says no one's righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, right? I thought the Bible says, uh, Romans 3.23, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Right? The, the wages of our sin is death. What is he talking about? The righteous. He's talking about those that think they're righteous. And what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to reach people that think they don't need to be reached. 
I didn't come to people that think, I'm good enough, I don't need Jesus. I came for people that say, I, I'm broken, I'm lost, I, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. So who should we be reaching out to? Here's the problem a lot of times, is the church or ministries are focusing on trying to reach the quarterback of the high school football team so his popularity could bring Jesus to the whole high school when we should be focusing on reaching people that are lost and they're hurting and they're broken and they're ready to come to Christ. And that's ripe, I call it. Let's look for people that everybody else has written off and tell them about Jesus. And many of those people will come to Christ. The first step into the kingdom is realizing you're not righteous. And you're a sinner in need of a savior, right? And those are the people we should be sharing the gospel with. It's the broken people, the people that everybody else has written off are the very people we should be sharing Christ with. Don't write them off. Hey, good thing nobody wrote you off. Good thing those high school students didn't write me off. God writes nobody off, right? We shouldn't either. Hey, okay, let's close with this now. What, Jesus said, I'm the great physician. I'm a doctor for the soul. I bring forgiveness of sins. So what do you do when you're sick physically with a doctor? What's the first step to getting better? You realize you're sick. You're not a word of faith person that says, hey, I'm just going to name it and claim it. I'm not going to be, I got 105 fever, but I'm, Jesus, I'm fine. No, you're not fine if you got 105 fever. You got to realize you're sick. That's the first step physically. It's the first step spiritually too. You want to get healthy spiritually. You want to get saved. You got to realize you're sick. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Second step, when you're physically not healthy, what's the second step? After you realize you're sick, what do you do? Go to the doctor. Get some help. You go to the doctor. But the third step you do, if you want to get better, is after you go to the doctor, what do you do? What you do is you follow his instructions and you do what he tells you to do. You ain't going to get better even after going to the doctor. You're not going to get better if you don't follow his instructions. So in closing this morning, hey, Jesus wants, if your sins aren't forgiven yet, and you don't know that you're right with God yet, first step is what we're talking about. Realize you're a sinner in need of a savior. You're sick. And guess what? We're all sick. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was a book written back in the 60s, all the way back. It was a psychological book. And it said, I'm okay and you're okay. That's a lie. book should have been, I'm not okay, you're not okay, and that's okay because there's a Savior and his name is Jesus, who's the great physician for our souls. So, hey, if you're here this morning and you're paralyzed and you have a paralysis going on, you're hurting, you're broken, you're not right with God. Go to the great physician. First up, realize there's a sickness in your soul that Jesus, the great physician, could fix. But then the second step is go to Jesus. And then after you go to Jesus, follow his instructions. You know what his instructions are? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. His instructions, John 1.12, but as many as received Christ, he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And if you've never done that, hey, make today be your day. Come to Christ and go to the doctor. He'll fix your soul. He'll heal you inwardly. And he'll forgive your sin.